Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Pastor James Biddle and Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Remember, we are blessed to be a blessing. Father, we thank you for just your love that you've lavished on us. I pray this morning, though, that um, we would be able to have hearts of understanding, ears to hear what you are saying to us and to the church as a whole. God, we thank you. We thank you as sons and daughters that we are heirs with our bigger brother Jesus in everything that he has unlocked in the kingdom. I just ask right now that we would live and operate from that fullness seated at his right hand. We thank you. That's where we place our mind today. Purify us in your holy name. Amen and amen. We know, have you ever experienced something that you just didn't expect? You know, maybe it was winning something. Uh, I remember my, my mom just a couple of weeks ago, they were in Colorado and I kept getting these phone calls because their house number is now the Kiko office number because it was located there for 22. Anyway, so Food City was trying to get a hold of her because she had won $300 in gift cards. And I'm like, well, this isn't real. This is not, this is not Food City. She's like, we're in Virginia. This is the corporate office. She needs to contact us in the next day. I'm like, she's in Colorado, folks. So I'm Janice Clark right now. I'll take that $300. But <laughs> she ended up winning it. She ended up getting that. That was something she didn't expect. I don't even think she entered the sweepstakes. It was just from her, like a Kroger card. It was the food club card. They just drew her number out. And um, so that's exciting. You know, sometimes the unexpected is exciting, right? But not always. Um, I know that sometimes we experience things that we didn't expect. And there's that wide range of emotions of, oh, I'm going to get this job. Oh, it didn't work out. Oh, this promotion is going to happen for me. Oh, not when I thought it would. And, uh, and sometimes we just go through that roller coaster. And today I want to talk a little bit about what we do when we face the unexpected. And so I remember what it was like when Candy and I first found out that we were actually expecting Ellie, our first child. Um, and I'll let her tell a little bit about that story. So Michael and I had been trying to get pregnant for a number of months and it had been a little bit of a roller coaster um, of emotions just in the trying. Um, we um, just had experienced some uh, emotional you know, instances in just the trying to get pregnant. And um, it had been a few months down the road and my sister calls me up along the way and she's like, guess what? I'm going to try to get pregnant too with my third. Um, and so, you know, I was, she's like, we can do this together. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was like, okay, well, sure. That'll be fun. And, um, and so <laughs> Angie's shaking her head. Um, and so, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, whatever, that's, that's fine. And so, you know, it goes along a few more weeks later at the beginning of December and I just knew with everything in me, I knew I was pregnant. Um, you know, I thought, you know, I just had all the symptoms and I, you know, was felt sick and I, I just had every symptom by the book. I thought, I, I know that I'm pregnant. I know that I am. And I made an appointment with my doctor on my lunch break and I went to my doctor and I was just like so excited thinking I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to have a yes. And, and so they did a test and they came back and they told me, no, you're not pregnant. And just my heart just plummeted and my stomach just dropped. And I thought this is never going to happen for me because if this is a no, because my, like everything in me told me it was a yes. And if this is a no, then I don't know what a yes is going to feel like. Um, and so I left the doctor that day in tears and I had to go back to work and finish the, the work day out. And um, I left work that day and I'm driving home and I get a phone call from my sister. And she's like, guess what? I'm pregnant. And she's like, I just wanted to call and tell you. She's like, I'm sending my Christmas cards out today to everybody, but I wanted to let you know so you didn't find out in the mail. And so she called and told me, and it was like just the worst possible day because here I am driving home after all of that. And, and so I'm just like, I'm, I pull everything up inside of me to be excited for her when everything in me was crushed. And so I was just, I just pulled everything together and just was so excited for her on the phone and talking to her about it and her telling me all about it. And then, and so then. I got off the phone with her and then I just remember crying the rest of the way home and get, being able to go home and talk to Michael and just trying to share the joy with my sister while also being able to have that emotion for myself was a, a hard thing to have. Um, so it was, you know, two, like two weeks later and still, I was still feeling the same way. I was still feeling like, you know what? I still think that 
I, I'm pregnant. I don't, I don't understand why this, I got this no. And it was Christmas Eve morning and I woke up and I took a pregnancy test and it was positive. Um, and so the thing is, is, you know what, it was a yes. And I was pregnant when I went to the doctor and I did know what, you know, my body was telling me and what I, what I thought was the truth. And that was Ellie. That was the best Christmas gift we could have given. God could have given us and we could have given our family, but you know, we just, we just didn't have that yes right then, but just the highs and lows that came with all of that and all of that trying and wondering and expecting. And, and that was a, a joyous thing and a good thing for all of our families. And, and now we have two little cousins that are 20 days apart. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing, but still with any type of change or experience in your life, there's highs and lows, there's goods and bads. There's, there's a roller coaster of emotion that comes with it. And we know that not always the unexpected has that happy ending in it. We, we get that. That's life, unfortunately. And I also remember the, the sinking feeling I had as we waited in a, a waiting room in 2010. My mom was having surgery. She had diverticulitis, and she'd been eating a lot of popcorn. And she thought the popcorn kernels were getting stuck in, her, in the lining of her stomach, and it was causing flare-ups. And so she was going in for this surgery where they found a blockage. Uh, little did we know as the doctor would come out and, and confirm for us that it was stage 3C of ovarian cancer that had actually grown through uh, her stomach. And so they were able to cut that portion out, splice it back together. Uh, but I remember just the sinking feeling you have of what what this is going to require of her and her family, um, all of us around. And just you, you hear that word. You hear the, the things that you, you hope to never hear. But the reality is, is that we all face these unexpected events. And today, a little bit um, of what we want to talk about is in this broken world, how do we overcome them? How do we continue to have faith and hope in a living and active God despite our circumstances? And don't let that dictate what we believe and what we hold on to. You know, most recently in our society and in our culture right now, there's a focus on the effects of trauma. I mean, how many of you have just with the news on or, or maybe you're in the education system or, or mental health wellness uh, and you're hearing about the impacts of trauma, the impacts in trauma. And there's trauma-informed schools and trauma-informed classrooms and, and all of this because the, the reality is we are a culture that is experiencing a lot of trauma because of just the, the direction our society is headed, and so it's become a very focused um, study, and so there's, there's some things that even in our training you can throw up. Um, what they talk about oftentimes in our training that we've had to go through with the um, foster care system are called ACEs, and how many of you have ever heard of an adverse childhood experience? Anybody ever heard of that? An ACE? Okay, a few of you. Good. I'm going to do just a, a little bit brief. This is going to seem like a little bit of teaching. I'll try not to keep it too dry. So an ACE, what, what we realized when we learned about this is that we all experience these. And the, we may not even think that you've experienced it, but you look at what an adverse childhood experience is. It's these traumatic um, events that occur in abuse or neglect. It could be emotional, physical, um, even sexual abuse, emotional and physical neglect. Emotional neglect is one of the, um, one of the most impactful um, forms of abuse that has long-lasting effects upon us um, from childhood on. And what even you would realize is that this can include things that were out of your control that occurred in your house. Maybe there was a parent that was an addicted parent. Maybe um, you experienced separation. And all these are categorized as an ACE, an adverse childhood experience. And what the studies have shown is that those that have experienced these as, as a kid, as a child in your early developmental years when your brain is still forming, that it has an impact on the way that you respond to trauma the rest of your life. And as I began to not only understand this because of foster care, but also the kids that I work with on a daily basis with Kiko, um, I, I can walk through many of those communities and over 50% of them have a, a score of four or more of the ACEs just from the things I know about their life. And, and they show that if you've experienced four or more, that you're three times uh, more likely to, um, to make poor choices in smoking, and, and then the result will be lung disease, um, and then also to experiment with drugs or all these things. What it ends up leading to is early death, and we realize that it all has to do with the way the brain develops. And uh, if you're truly interested, I'll just throw a website out there. If you're truly interested in, in researching more, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry is kind of on the forefront of this. And childtrauma.org is really on the forefront of a lot of the 
what they call neurosequential models. That's a big fancy word, sir, for saying we realize that the brain stem is the first to develop and the first to be underdeveloped, and then all of the trickle to the limbic system and everything else, um, that if we have a model that, uh, that approaches the brain in the way that it needed to be developed to begin with, we can also be a part of that healing process. And so for me, even with adverse childhood experiences, there's hope. We have a little guy in our home now, a Levi, who honestly, um, even in his few short weeks of being in the world, had a lot of odds stacked against him. But one of the common denominators in this second slide, if you'll throw it up there, is an ounce of of prevention is worth a pound of cure. One of the things that they show of, of kids that have grown up in trauma, maybe even for years, and they end up in a, in a moderately good situation, it's because they had at least one adult, one caring adult in their life. One caring adult. And so we can be a part of that process, not only in understanding what we are experiencing, because how many of you know you can't, you can't help someone from your own trauma? If you haven't dealt with your own, then you'll never be able to help someone else heal from theirs. And that's what we want to really talk about today. Uh, if you're interested in more of this, that's not the focus of, my, of our message or our discussion today, but it's something that we're really passionate about uh, because of what is going on in our society and our culture now. And, and it doesn't take a scientist. You can go ahead. Here's what we really want to talk about today is being a trauma-informed church, being a trauma-informed church. And, and this doesn't mean that... It doesn't take a scientist to realize that there's people in this room that are going through traumatic events right now. I mean, I don't need to be um, in everybody's business to realize that out of this many people, there's some people that are facing some really difficult circumstances and situations uh, with family, with work, with maybe personal health, whatever it may be. We know that we're walking through some dark times when we're around other people. And a trauma-informed church, I think what that's going to mean for us today is how do we How do we begin that process of healing for ourselves? How do we have ears that are listening and engaged to the person next to us? And how can we be trauma-informed to see healing and health that God desires in the shalom and peace of our city? And so that's what we want to talk about today because trauma is painful and I wish it never happened. I wish it didn't occur for those who follow Christ, but it rains on the just and the unjust alike is what scripture says. And the reality is, is that we will face hardships in difficult times. But Jesus said this in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. But in this world, you're gonna have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you hear one thing, I want you to hear this, is that God's going to carry us through. You will get through what you're facing now. You will get through what you're facing tomorrow because we can hold on to the one who has overcome it all. And even though sin and brokenness of this world may touch us, he's promised us freedom and healing in our hurt and our pain. And he will, he will allow us to experience that he is truly Jehovah Rapha, the one who delivers us from any brokenness and make us whole in Christ. And so what I want to focus on first is how these experiences are common to all of us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, something that I'm going to retranslate for us. He says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Verse 13, no temptation. And the Greek word for temptation here can also be translated just as much so testing. That no testing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. If you'll go back to verse uh, 13, the beginning part of it, 13a. What I want to focus on is that no testing or temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. One of the first things that I think when we experience something that is painful and hurts is the enemy will want to isolate us. He'll want to, he'll do that through our mindset of they're not going to understand what you're going through because when we're in the middle, middle of that, it is very personal. It is very, it, it hurts deeply. We certainly wouldn't expect someone else to understand because they're not going through it. But what we have to understand that it is common to all of us to go through hardship and to go through difficult times. And, and to not give in to the lie of the enemy that, that we're the only ones that are going to experience or understand this. 
And even though that we all experience um, traumatic events and we, uh, in, in this world, we all experience something, it affects us all very differently. You know, we all experience trauma and react to trauma in so many different ways. So I think we have all seen obvious signs of reaction to trauma. We see uh, people who get easily angered, um, people who can react with loud outbursts or responses or people who will fight and people who, um, you know, you can just see their, their trauma written all over over their face. Um, you can see that in little bitty kids all the way up to adults, um, you know, people who end up getting thrown in jail for their response to trauma. Um, but there are also people who you would never know that they're experiencing trauma, people who tend to withdraw, people who maybe will tend to um, experience depression. Um, there's just so many different reactions to trauma. Um, you know, I, um, when, when I was 16 years old, my dad, um, he died very suddenly from a brain aneurysm. Um, he was, he was fine. I got a, uh, my mom came to school to pick me up and she picked us up and said something bad has happened. Um, and he was at his lake house up in Wisconsin and he had had a brain aneurysm and they like life flighted him to a hospital in, in Minnesota. And, uh, we got there as quickly as we could, but I mean, there was nothing that they could do for him. So we got to spend about 30 minutes with him and they took him off the machines and he was gone. Um, you know, um, my sister was 19, I was 16 and my brother was 13. So that's a lot of unexpected trauma in the life of a kid. Um, <clears throat> but in looking at the way that we all responded, we all responded very differently. Um, my brother and sister tend to respond, responded in ways that were more outward. You know, my brother tended to act out a little bit more. My sister by, was by herself at college, you know, but she tended to call home and she, she, um, asked, was asking for help in different ways. <clears throat> and I withdrew and I kind of pulled into myself and acted like I was fine. And I even heard my mom on the phone a couple of times tell, telling somebody people, I guess people were asking about us. And I even heard her say the words, Oh, Candy, she's the strong one. And I, I, I remember her hearing, hearing those words and thinking, but I'm not, but I'm not. Um, and I, I mean, for years I would cry myself to sleep, but wanted to be okay. And I think that there are so many people who respond that way to pain because they don't want people to see them as weak or they don't want people to see that they need help or they don't know how to ask for help. I think I've shared with you guys, you know, before, even just in, in fostering or, or, you know, being a mom, you know, when you guys are like, well, can I help or can I do this? And, and so often it's like, well, you know, I signed up for this. Like if I can't do it, like then I shouldn't be doing it. You know, it's like, it's hard for me to ask for help. It's hard for me to let other people help me. And, and I think that's, I'm that way across the board, but it's, people react in different ways. And regardless of how we exhibit it, we're all hurting. We are all hurting just the same. The person that will, you know, punch somebody in the face is gonna is hurting the same way as the one that is withdrawing into a turtle shell every time, you know, something happens that hurts them. And it took me a lot of years to learn how to not just automatically withdraw like that anytime something even had the slightest possibility of hurting me. You know, anytime something even had the slightest possibility of being confrontational or being hurtful or anything else, I would automatically try to, you know, I called it my turtle shell. I'd just withdraw right inside there just to keep from, from getting hurt, from having the possibility of, of, of hurting again. Um, and, and although trauma is that shared experience, and although we, th we should be able to understand that from each other's perspectives, you know, we think that the other people, the person sitting beside us can't understand. So we don't share. But, but you know, we don't seek to offer understanding either. Um, you know, we've all been in that grocery store and seen the kid that we think is way too old to be throwing the temper tantrum. And, you know, we turn the other way and kind of roll our eyes and think, you know, that kid needs to get it together or that mom needs to get it together. But we don't seek to offer understanding what that child or that parent or what that situation is. You know, we, we just automatically go to um, judging instead of trying to offer understanding. 
So it's so easy to pass judgment on anyone we see whose situation is different than the situation we're in, whether it may be someone who is homeless, um, someone who is an addict, um, you know, in our situation, someone who has lost their children, you know, it, so, so often we see these situations, these extremes or even not extremes, and we pass judgment from our pedestal. And, you know, we don't know the situations that have brought them to their current circumstances. Oh, there's no way we can. We don't know if it's generational. We don't know if there's their parent was an addict or what their situation. My, my dad was an alcoholic whose parents gave him his first beer when he was five years old. You know, he never stood a chance. So we don't know what someone's situation can be. And so there's, there's series of choices. Yes, and I, you know, I see so many people that, that criticize addicts and, and make these horrible you know, responses against them, but we don't know what has put them in these, in these places. You know, I, I read a blog post. Um, I see I'm on a lot of foster blogs, and I see, get a lot of emails, and I read a blog post um, a couple of weeks ago that talked about foster care in the church, and it talked about how so often foster families and adopted families of foster children are not welcome in the church. And that broke my heart because what better place for them? What better place for kids who have experienced trauma than in the walls of the church than to be with the people that should be open, welcoming them with open arms? But it talked about how, you know, they come in and a lot of times they may have, you know, uh, have experienced these trauma and so the, these ACEs. And so they act out with maybe, you know, ADD or they have, you know, other, other symptoms of acting out and the church doesn't want to deal with it. There's the children's program says, well, our, our children's staff isn't equipped to deal with this. You know, you'll have to take them somewhere else. And, uh, you know, that's not okay. You know, we need to, to be able to open our arms to anyone and everyone that needs the love of Jesus. And it's the same thing with, you know, it's been, it's been a number of years ago, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to confess on myself. <laughs> I was in a church. It was a big, fancy church. And um, I had kind of snuck in the back. I, I think Ellie was a little baby, and I think I had been out with her and kind of snuck in the back along a wall. And I was standing there, and I felt some, somebody kind of come up beside me. And I should say that I smelled him before I sensed him. And, you know, I was worshiping, and, and, I, and I, my senses were kind of all assaulted at once. And I smelled, you know, body odor and alcohol. And, um, I looked over and there was a man who was quite obviously homeless. Um, very, I mean, he smelled like he had taken a bath in alcohol and he smelled like he hadn't had a bath in weeks and he looked very bedraggled and in, you know, very ragged clothes. And do you know that the first thing that came to my mind is what is he doing here? That's the first thing that came to my mind. And how wrong is that mentality? God very quickly convicted me, very quickly convicted me because, well, why do I have to be there? And I know that that's an extreme because how often do we have a homeless person walking off the street? But what if we did? What if we did? We just need to get that mindset right. You know, we, we say that we're a missional church and we want to go out into the world, but if we're going to go out into the world, we need to open our doors and say, come in. And if they come in, what's our reaction going to be? You know, we have hurting people in this church too. And we don't, maybe we don't know everybody's stories, but we still like, we just need to know what it doesn't matter. Whoever's sitting beside us, whether it be that extreme example or whether it not be our lives need to be that, that we can show the love of Christ and be the light of Christ to whoever is around us, whether it be in the walls of this church or at your job or out on the street. Um, and, and, and Christ has called us to be that light. And to me, being a trauma-informed church means understanding how trauma shows up in the lives of others who are hurting and that we are seeking to feel and seeking to, and seeking to hear those people around us. So how does that change our perspective? How does that change how we approach others? Because this is difficult for me because I'm very type A. I'm let's get our task done before we have relationship, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's tough for me to sit down, okay, shift my way of normally doing things to be intentional to listen and to understand. 
And so knowing yourself, first of all, is, is, is a key component to knowing how you've got to prepare yourself to respond to someone when they begin to divulge their, their pain. Or maybe you, you begin to actually look because they may never tell you. They may be in their turtle show withdrawn, shutting down. But you look for those cues. You look for those trauma response cues that maybe they're experiencing some hurt that they're never going to tell you about. And you may just walk right by them and write them off and have your Sunday happy face on and, and go on your merry way, but they're falling apart. And so being trauma-informed is knowing how do we recalculate, recalculate the way that we respond. I'm not stealing that from Michael Todd. It's just the first word. But how we respond is so key. And I, wanna, I want you to watch this uh, brief video. It's by an educator in the University of Houston, uh, Brene Brown. And she talks about the difference between empathy versus sympathy. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. I didn't make that video. You know, I was on a call recently um, as a chaplain, and it was in the middle of the night. Um, her, she found her husband who had just passed away um, on the couch, TV blaring. And I show up and end up having an opportunity just to pray with her. And it, she's just, she's blindsided. She's just caught off guard as you would expect her to be. And I, I began to share with her a, a moment of vulnerability and pain of my own experiences with my family and knowing what it translated to to making the most of every moment that you have because you just don't know when it's going to be the last. And we got, I got a thank, we got a thank you card to uh, the sheriff's department. And um, that was one of the last things she said. She said, I don't remember much about that morning. It's all a blur. But I remember you praying with me, and I remember the sense of peace just coming over me and into, that, into my home. And then at the very bottom was a PS, and it was just kind of a personal note. She still remembered my attachment to her pain, and she shared about my story. You know, empathy goes so much further than sympathy. My natural response is sympathy. Well, at least, you know, and, and we go on our way because it doesn't require us to feel it doesn't require us to dig up something and relate to. And sometimes that, that does, it hurts. And, uh, but here's what I love about what Jesus has done. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 4, verse 14. 
through 16. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted or tested in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So now we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can approach him with confidence, knowing that we're going to receive mercy and find grace because we have, we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. The only way that we can give mercy and grace is when we've been able to empathize with someone else. Because otherwise, we can only give judgment, which was never ours to give. There's only one who is allowed to give judgment. He will sit on the throne at the end of all time. But before then, and, and between now and then, it is only mercy and grace that we have the opportunity to provide. And empathy is closely attached to how we can give that. And so we, we see that we have a foundation of understanding that trauma is common to, to all of us, but how we respond is differently is different. And if we will put up our little antenna and, and begin to cue in to what someone else is experiencing, we can begin to offer empathy and maybe even see that pathway towards healing for them and for ourselves. I love what the psalmist would write in Psalm 91. It says that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So this is not a psalmist who is wallowing, who is saying, I'm going to remain the victim. And that's something that we have to be sure that we, that we can communicate in a way that is healthy and, re, and retains dignity on both sides. You can't stay stuck in your trauma. That's not where you're going to say, just because I crawled down here in this pit with you, I'm, I'm going to empathize with you. But we're coming out of here together eventually. I don't know when, but we're going to come out of here together. I don't care if you've got to get on my back, you know, and I'm climbing up this ladder with you. It's going to happen. I'm not just saying, hey, you want a sandwich? You know, but, but I'm truly understanding, and we're going, to, we're going to come out of this together. And sometimes it, we can be more easily reminded that God is with us and less inviting to the idea that we also need the person sitting next to us right now. What do I mean by that? It's so important for us to understand the value of the body of Christ. God has designed it that way so that we can remain humble and dependent not only on him, but on one another. Because this is what fulfills the law of Christ. It's carrying one another's burdens. That's what Paul would write in Galatians 6 too. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 25. He says this, Paul writes to the, to the, Corinth, um, to the church in Corinth. He says, so there should be no division in the body. Well, we know that's not true, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. That's where we're failing. So verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored or rejoicing, every part rejoices with it. I remember when I first learned what this actually meant. I was 15. I was leading my first small group at the time. Trinity Chapel was located downtown. Um, I was co-leading this group. Of, of teenagers in a small group. And I remember, I remember having to finally give up my group because the guy, the people that were in my group were going through a lot of just hurt and pain. I had one young lady that we were picking up every, um, every Wednesday night to come to our group. She lived near West high school and she was so angry towards her mom. She didn't know her dad, but she was so angry towards her mom. Next thing you know, I have like these angry feelings towards my own parents, and I didn't understand why. I didn't know where they came from. I had another young man that was in our group, and he was struggling with his purity. And, and the things that he was viewing at that time, internet was just becoming more available in homes. It was still dial-up and taking forever. But he's, he, was, he had been exposed to some things that were causing his eye gate to be impure. Next thing I know, I was circling around some of these same struggles in my own life because what I didn't realize is that when we put ourselves out there to help someone else, we begin to step in between what the, the scripture would call intercession. You begin to step in between what they are going through and the attack of the enemy on their lives and themselves. And I began to realize that, wow, I'm beginning to understand how they're suffering 
what they are struggling with, what they are going through. And it blindsided me as a teenager. I didn't understand. I had to step down. I thought I was a mess. What's going on? And you don't realize that until you step in a role of spiritual authority in someone's life. It doesn't mean you're a pastor. You just begin to step into someone's life and get involved and want to pull them out of it. You're stepping into their mess and you have to be aware of how that works. I talked to a, a friend of mine. She uh, began volunteering with Kiko 20 plus years ago, and she's a board member currently, but uh, she works for the Knoxville Urban League, and they had an open house. They've moved into their new facility off of Magnolia, and just super exciting. But she began to share with me how this verse applied in her life. For three years, her and her husband, Joe, led a marriage ministry, and, and they would take people on retreats and met weekly, 52 weeks a year, met every week with people. Um, I had a church in South Knoxville that allowed them to host it there. She said, but what I, I continue to tell my husband is we've got to watch our back door. We've got to watch how the enemy is going to come against our marriage because we're opening ourselves up to help others in their marriage and to stay strong and healthy. We have to make sure that we're not, um, that we're not blindsided by lies and deceit. And sure enough, it wasn't a few months later they were divorced. Wow. The enemy had torn them apart picked them off, an African-American couple at that, how, how the enemy just wants to make, make a show of an unhealthy marriage in, the, in that community especially. And so she was telling me this through tears about how she learned that, man, when we begin to get involved in other people's lives, we are putting ourselves out there in the middle of what they're facing. And the enemy will begin to target us. Not only that, but we begin to understand through intercession what they're going through. You know, and when we're experiencing this pain and hurt, it's, it's important that we talk about the impact of forgiveness in this healing process. Oftentimes, before we can move past our trauma, we have to deal with the unforgiveness that's in our heart. You know, bitterness and unforgiveness are the lingering effects of trauma, whether we realize it or not. You know, and they will hold us back and they will taint what God wants to do in our life. Um, we can't move forward with any type of, of unresolved bitterness um, that's, that's lingering in our heart. Um, sometimes this unforgiveness is aimed toward the person who hurt us. Um, sometimes this unforgiveness is at God. I spent years being angry at God for taking my dad away. Um, you know, I, I knew that I had a call in my life. I continued, I went to Bible college, you know, all, all of this. And I, and I still had anger at God because I've, you know, I felt like that this was something that was just inside of me. And I, and I had this one side of me that said, I have a call in my life. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm still walking it out because I know that this is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. But the other side of me still has this in, is had this deep seated in, in me. And it was tainting the purity of what God wanted to do with my call. Um, and we also, the, the, the flip side of it is we also may find ourselves having a hard time forgiving ourselves. And I think sometimes because of the trauma that we face in our lives, we make poor decisions um, or we make decisions that lead to sin. Um, <clears throat> and then we are, are under a cloud of shame and guilt. And then we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And I think so often these, this unforgiveness, it roots us in place. Um, I just, when I, we were studying for this, I just, I kept seeing this picture um, of, of a person who was standing and looking ahead and it's, they felt, they felt like God was calling them forward. They felt like, they're like, I see where, where I'm supposed to go and I see where God wants to take me, but my feet are stuck. I feel like these roots are like in, in like those those roots that come out of the ground and trap you, you know, like when you're having a bad dream and you get stuck and you can't move and it's like your feet are all stuck and all tangled up in these roots of bitterness and unforgiveness and you have to cut it off. You have to kill it and you have to give it to God and let that go before you can ever be free to move forward and to walk forward in what he has for you. Because it will always trip you up and it will always hold you back. And the thing is, is it's not hurting anyone except you. you we may think that this unforgiveness, well, and this anger that you have, it, it directed towards the person who hurt you or whatever, that it's hurting 
you know, this other person, you know, and I thought like, I'm hurting God, you know, take that God, take that, you know, you know, he, all he was giving back to me was love, you know, he, he, he just kept throwing love at me. And I was like, (laughs) um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that we have to walk that out. We have to, we have to get free of it because it will hold you back from everything he has for you. Unforgiveness is, is powerful, just as powerful as forgiveness is, what we've experienced. Um, James 2 tells us that our faith uh, is connected to how we treat and interact with those around us. And this is, this is key even in forgiveness. 1 John 4 says this in verse 19, We love because he first loved us. And then verse 20, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. I don't know how much clearer you get than that right there. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this is, this is uh, how we understand forgiveness. How can we uh, truly accept and receive and understand and process forgiveness from God? until we can also give it to our brother and our sister next to us that have hurt us. Matthew 6, Jesus says this very thing. Verse 14, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I always have a hard time with this verse. I have a hard time really wanting to accept that God's going to withhold his forgiveness. And it's like the one who's been forgiven all that, that debt, but yet goes to the one who owes so much less and demands to collect. We have no right to collect on a debt of forgiveness that when we have been forgiven such an insurmountable debt that we owed God and he took upon himself. Forgiveness is powerful. I was talking to my mother-in-law this week. They just got back from New England, and she spent four weeks doing a a series up there um, with her son's church on this very topic on forgiveness. And she was sharing with me how there were daughters that were going to their fathers and forgiving them and releasing them and also speaking the good things that they had done for them and instilled in them. And then there were, there were wives and husbands that had been separated for years that that wife finally began to forgive and release her husband. And then that process just begins uh, because ultimately we understand, like Candy said, that unforgiveness isn't holding that other person back. It's only holding us back. We can't move forward in the healing process until we can release what is holding us back. Jesus, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he did that through his life and creating a bridge where there can be peace between us and God. And it came in the form of us being forgiven of our sins. His reason for coming was forgiveness. There's nothing more Christ-like that we can do than to forgive. That was his reason for coming. And that when we do that, we are acting most like him. I want to talk about how just a a few brief points, and then we're going to wrap up and, and have some time of prayer. How can we prepare ourselves for the unexpected? How can we help our neighbor, our friend, our coworker, whoever it may be, prepare for things that come into our lives because of the fallen world we live in? We know that there's going to be a storm, but if we seek to build our house in the middle of the storm, it's too late. You can't wait till Hurricane Michael comes to to establish something that is solid and and have a game plan. You've got to have something already built that can withstand the storm, a a preparation plan of you're going to do this, I'm going to do that. This is how we're going to respond. You have to build it before the storm comes. And we've we've talked about understanding that it's all going to happen to us. But the idea is, is that we can share this burden with our neighbor, that we can understand that we can carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about what I call the crazy train. And these are going to be some practical ways that I think we can understand. So I came up with this crazy train. I don't know about you, but I I sometimes ride this with my kids. We get on this like a roller coaster at Dollywood, and I just ride ride the crazy train with them. And what I mean by is something will happen. And it'll, it'll spark either a, a, an event that, that hurts deeply and there's a, a stimuli or trigger. And, and then all of a sudden we either have to decide if we're going to deal with it at that point. Because these are the, the, the bottom of the train, either the top or at the end of the hill, are the moments when we can accept and deal with truth. When we can be healed. When we can even, our brain can actually have a conversation that is going to be healthy. 
But as soon as we start to go up the crazy train and go to the escalation phase and, you know, and, and your, your child's maybe having a meltdown and next thing you know, you're responding to it and your voice inflection gets a little bit higher. And, and so it's, it's no one's at this point is, is going to get any better unless we somehow come down together. And the next thing you know, it's climax and it's out of control and you've said things that have hurt one another. Or you've done something, you've acted out, maybe withdrawn. You're riding the crazy train. Is anyone else riding the crazy train before? I mean, this is something that happens only in my family, apparently. I think I wrote it yesterday. Yeah, I wrote it yesterday with Ellie. We went on the crazy train together. But my problem, and this happened yesterday, I have to confess, as soon as something begins to go up, that crazy train is like, I'm going up too, and don't you dare take me with you. And so I respond in that instead of, okay, I'm going to self-regulate. I'm going to understand where I'm at in this crazy train process so that I can be cooled off and we can actually have some fruitful conversation because recognizing is really really half the battle right there, recognizing we're red in this process. I think uh, self-awareness is just so crucial and key. G.I. Joe says this, knowing is half the battle, Carrie. I've said it before, but it's so, it's so good. He's one of the greatest psychologists ever to live, G.I. Joe. But psychologists say that awareness is curative. It's basically the same thing G.I. Joe said, just with fancier words. But awareness really is, is curative. So we have to recognize what is going on around us. Where is my internal stress barometer right now? Am I at even a place to be able to help someone else? Because remember, we've got to put our mask on first before we can help the person next to us. And if we respond without our oxygen mask out, we're out of control. We're not self-regulated. We're responding rather than teaching rather than walking with and empathizing and understanding, then it's just going to continue up that train. Is it not? Someone you've ridden it with, you know, you've, you've ridden it today on your way to church. You were riding the crazy train. And so we understand that we've got to recognize where we're at in this process. Another just practical thing is, is communication, communicating with the person maybe that you're interacting with. Okay, wait a minute. We're both out of control. We just need to have a, uh, we need to have a key word when we can call time out. It could be honey badgers, whatever your keyword is, right? Going back to family feud. Whatever your keyword is, just know it, communicate it. Have this as part of your plan. Okay, I, I need time to cool off, maybe more than you, but either way, I'm calling it. I'm calling an audible here. We've got we've to have a timeout because now we can allow our emotions to calm down. Then we can come back and try to navigate towards truth together. And, and during that pause, during that timeout, give yourself and others just the space. Don't follow. I call timeout, but I'm following you through the house. You're not, you're not going to get away from me when I said timeout. You know, but we still continue to hound and we want the answers. We want them to respond. To, uh, we want them to respond. And we all respond so differently. Katie and I just went to a marriage class last, last Saturday? Tuesday? I don't remember. It all is a big blur. Marriages. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we were in this class and he's talking about how um, typically, typically men will be the withdrawers and not respond and the women want an answer and they want to know. And we're like, that's the opposite. <laughs> Candy's the man in our, in our relationship when it comes to communication. And we've known that. We've known that since day one. And, and that was kind of what she was talking about, how she withdraws. That's her trauma response. When things get heated, whew, I don't want conflict. I don't want to deal with it. And so rather than, she would never follow me around. I'd be the one wanting the answer following her around. But I've got to give her time and space to cool off. Really, it's just me to cool <laughs> off. And so she's fine. But, but giving them the benefit of the doubt giving them the benefit of the doubt so that when we come back together, I can listen. And uh, maybe, maybe you have to use the Indian talking stick and, and one at a time and even with your kids. I mean, it's healthy. We've got to have a strategy, whatever it is in place, to be able to not continue these cycles of the crazy train. And so remember uh, that sometimes you may just have to remove yourself from a situation. There may be something you're going through that is toxic. It may be a relationship that you're not, you're not in it for better or for worse. That would be the only one. Unless there is physical abuse that, that you need to remove yourself from. But there may be some relationships that you're in that you're not tied to that way that are just toxic and dragging you through this crazy train. And you've just got to say, you know what? Not right now. I can't do this. I can't do this for the, I can't do this for the betterment of myself and those that I'm around and, and I value. Removing ourselves from that, that stimuli or trigger. And so another practical way is that when we're trying to help someone else, Make sure that we're able to stay calm and self-regulated ourselves. This is so key. And this is probably the most difficult thing for me to do, honestly. 
is for me to stay down here while they continue their train ride and wait for them to get off. I'm going to wait for you. You had a fast pass, but I didn't. And so I'm going to stay down here. And then when it's time, and it may not be that day when you want to handle it. It may be the following morning, and it may require something where you get some other uh, some other senses in their body activated with kids. It may be, hey, we're going to go for a walk, and then we're going to talk because now other things are firing. I'm not just focused on what is bothering me. Uh, sometimes what I have to do most with, with my kids and the ones I especially work with is just distract them from what's bothering them. I just got to get the, their mind off of that and onto something else. I've just got to, I've got to distract before I can come back and address. And, and that can be really hard for us sometimes because we want to, I'm a fix it kind of guy. I want to address it. I want to fix it. And I want to move on. But that doesn't always work in communication. It doesn't work when we want to see healing in the process of hurt. And, and these are just some practical ways that I think that we can understand. And ultimately God is going to carry us through. God is the one that's going to get you through this. As I close, I want, to, I want to end with a verse from Romans 12, 1 and 2, something very common that we've all heard and seen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That crazy train is the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how do we do that? By staying in his word, by remaining focused on him through worship, by constantly connecting with him through prayer. The word worship and prayer is the trifecta for us staying connected to what God has for us, keeping our minds focused on him so that it can be renewed and we can unravel this crazy train and understand God's got a better way. God's got a better way. He is healing me in the process of allowing me to help the one next to me. He's got a better way. And I want us to end right now. Um, Jared, if you can pull up a song, Fullness, on Spotify. But I think it was back there a second ago. I want us to have a time of prayer and just an opportunity for anyone that is going through uh, just any hurt or pain right now. Or maybe it's something that you've experienced before. Um, but you, you maybe can stand in the place of someone that you love or someone you care about to see that healing. Or maybe it might be you today. But there is something that God wants to begin to break those hard walls that we've put up. And, and why is this important? I think about if we don't address the hurt and trauma, those, those hidden giants in our lives, then our kids will have to. Right. We will, we will duplicate, duplicate this cycle in them if we don't address it. And I look at David and I look at how he slayed a giant as a young man, but he didn't deal with a giant on the inside. And what do I mean by that? He may have slayed a giant externally, but he had one that was hidden called lust. And when he was out of place and not fighting the battles in the springtime with his men, he saw a young lady on the rooftop and, and ended up in a muck and miry situation that I don't think he ever wanted uh, to, to be in. I don't think he put that on his life goals. One day, I hope to commit adultery and murder. I don't think that was on David's life goals when he was strumming his harp out in the fields with his sheep. But David found himself there because he didn't address a giant on the inside. And if we don't address uh, uh, the giants that we face internally, then our kids will have to. So we, need, we have the onus and the responsibility to slay those giants so they don't. And so this morning, I just want to encourage, if there's anyone, um, if the prayer team, if anyone that would want to come and join us just for prayer to be able to pray with you, anyone at all that would say, Michael, for me or for someone that I know and love, I want to stand in the place and just begin to say, God, I'm claiming the healing. I'm claiming that you're going to walk us through. You're going to see victory, God. I'm believing you that you have overcome. You have overcome the world. Then I just invite you to come this morning. Go ahead and play.